Hello, I'm William Henry. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I shall be reading some of the scripture references. And I am Michael Penny. Now, in our last podcast, we reached the point where Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane and taken to the high priest Caiaphas. Yeah, and we've got to remember, I think, that this all this was happening in the middle of the night. But before describing what happened to Jesus, Luke tells us what happened to Peter. Yeah, that's right. We know that initially all 11 disciples ran away from Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. However, John 18.15 tells us that Peter and uh, some unnamed disciple followed at a distance. Yeah, but this unnamed disciple, whoever he was, uh, was known to the high priest and he was able to get Peter into the courtyard. And Luke chapter 22 in verses 54 to 58 tell us what happened. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know the man, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Yeah, you know, Peter was pretty brave, wasn't he, to go right into the courtyard of the high priest's house and sit round the fire with all the Lord's enemies, especially after he was challenged the first time by the servant girl. Oh, yeah, that's true. You cannot question Peter's bravery. Uh, but sometimes, you know, he was he was not very wise. <laughs> on one occasion, his bravery deserted him, sometimes at a critical moment. Yeah, like the, the time he tried to walk on the water to meet Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. He was doing okay until he looked at the waves and then he panicked. Oh, that may be true. Well, I don't think I would ever have been brave enough to step out of the boat in the first place, especially since I can't swim, Will. But what about you? Oh, well, I, mean, I can swim, but uh, I think Jesus wanted him to walk on the water, not to swim through it. Mind okay. you, I don't think I fancy walking on these waves either. No, no. Anyway, but there's a prequel to this incident in the courtyard. Earlier, Peter had vowed never to desert Jesus, as he said in Luke twenty-two thirty-three. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus gave Peter a very serious and sobering answer. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. That's Luke 22, verse 34. Right. So now at the fireside, Peter had been challenged twice and both times he'd denied that he knew Jesus. So what happens next? About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. That's in Luke 22, verse 60. An hour later and he was still there. It sounds as if he had been chatting to the guards and servants around the fire. Then one of them noticed that he had a Galilean accent and made the connection with Jesus. Yeah, this is a, it's a much more serious accusation than the first two, isn't it? The man says, certainly you were with him. And John chapter 18, verse 26 says that this man was a relative of the high priest servant. That's Malchus, I think, whose ear Peter had cut off. He probably recognised Peter from the garden. Yes, yes, you're, you're right there. There was so much 
this was a well, this was a more difficult challenge, a more dangerous challenge, and could have had much more serious consequences. So Peter denied the Lord for a third time. Yeah, and then two things happened. First, the rooster crowed, and then Jesus came out of the house. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And that's in Luke 22, verses 59 to 62. Gosh, what an experience for poor Peter. Luke doesn't say where the Lord was in relation to Peter. Perhaps he was being taken through the courtyard at the time the cock crowed. At any rate, what must have been in that look? So what do you think? Do you think it was a, a judgmental look? A look of, I told you so, I knew you were going to do that? Or what do you think? A look of sadness, a look of compassion? Yeah, I think I think the last one is right. The Lord uh, loved Peter, and I'm sure it was a look of compassion. And it sounds as if it was that look which triggered the memory of Jesus protecting his betrayal. It must be a, been devastating to him to have his weakness brought home to him like that. Yes, it's not surprising he went out and wept bitterly. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that nobody followed him when he left the fire in such a hurry. I suppose it, it just wasn't his time to be arrested, was it? I think mm. sometimes we're a bit hard on Peter. He was a really brave man to follow Jesus like that. And unlike the other 10 apostles, he stayed around to see what would happen even after he'd been challenged twice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I imagine we've all been there and denied Jesus. Maybe not in such a dramatic fashion as Peter, but for instance, by not speaking up when we should have or by the things we've said or done, all of which would suggest to others around us that we are not one of the Lord's people at all. Yes, but the Lord's always willing to restore us again, isn't he? And although mm. Peter went out and wept bitterly, presumably Peter was no doubt thinking that that was the end of the road for him, but John 21 tells us how the Lord, after the resurrection, reinstated Peter at the lakeside, not only reinstated him, but commissioned him to be a shepherd of the Lord's flock. Oh, it's so good to know. And it's an important lesson for us too, you know, that he will reinstate us after we've messed up. But um, anyway, what was happening now to Jesus after he had looked at Peter? Well, he was taken from the house of Annas, who's the former high priest. He still, I think, retained the title of high priest I suppose it's kind of like the past American presidents who are still called Mr. President. He was taken to the house of Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. Wasn't uh, he the son-in-law of Annas? Yes, he was. But when Jesus got there, Luke tells us that he was abused and mocked by the Jewish guards who had captured him. And Luke describes his trial very, very briefly. Yeah, Luke doesn't go into the trial in any detail it was clearly a very rushed trial. From the other Gospels, we learn of the hearing in front of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, in John 18.13. And from here, Jesus was sent to Caiaphas himself. But all this took place in the middle of the night, as we said earlier, didn't it? They were desperate mm. to find something they could convict him of. 
Luke only describes a meeting at daybreak with the whole of the Sanhedrin. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. That's Luke 22, verses 66 to 67. It's a bit of a leading question, isn't it? They were trying to get him to condemn himself out of his own mouth. Yeah, but he didn't dodge the question. His reply was completely direct. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And that's Luke 22, verses 66 to 69. That's right. And over these three years, he had told them by word and by action, by performing all the miracles, which the Messiah was supposed to do, according to Isaiah 35. It proved that he was the Messiah, but they refused to believe. And also, over these three years, he'd asked them lots of questions, most of which they'd failed to answer. Yeah, but now things were changing. He says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at God's right hand. His earthly ministry was finished, and he was now about to start the process that would end in his glorification. But that answer of his provoked another question. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying that I am. And that's Luke 22, verse 70. Gosh, that was another very direct question. Not just a son of God, but the son of God. It is interesting that the Lord himself, by and large, describes himself as son of man, which is one of his favorite titles. But they immediately linked son of man with him being the son of God. Yes, I think so. And his answer is no less direct to the second question. I think there's some doubt in the, the text exactly of what he said. Son of God wasn't the usual way he described himself. He usually called himself Son of Man. But now that they had called him Son of God, well, he agreed to it wholeheartedly. Exactly. Anyway, let's look at their response in verse 71. Then they replied, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. No doubt they understood what he was claiming. There's no doubt about that. So by the law of Moses, a claim like that was blasphemy, and therefore it was worthy of death. Yes, but they had a problem. Under Roman rule, they were not allowed to execute anyone. So they had to try and persuade Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, to have him crucified. Yes, that's right. But if they took him to Pilate, and charged him with blasphemy. I don't think Pilate would have been terribly interested in that. So they had to come up with something else. Listen to this. It shows the extent they were prepared to go to. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ, a king. And that's Luke 23, verses 1 to 2. Gosh, that's a bit different, isn't it? They present him as an enemy of Rome, as one refusing to pay taxes, which was a blatant lie. He paid his taxes, as we know. Got Peter to find a coin in a fish's mouth. And they accused him of setting himself up as a king to rival the emperor. In fact, 
it's realized, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. But Pilate wasn't really fooled, was he? No, certainly he wasn't. Luke doesn't say very much about the Lord's interaction with Pilate. But from the other Gospels, it is clear that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that Jesus had been brought to him. And he really wanted to let Jesus go. He wanted nothing to do with him. He just wanted to get him off his hands. Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And that's in Luke 23, verses 6 to 7. Yeah, Herod was was really a, a despicable sort of man. He had no respect for the law of Moses, and he'd murdered John the Baptist, of course. Um, but it's clear from the text that he wanted to see Jesus, because I think he was hoping that Jesus would do some conjuring tricks for him. Hmm. But when the Lord came before him, he shows that he had no time for him at all. Of course, back in Luke 13, Jesus had described Herod as that fox. And when he was brought before him here, well, Jesus didn't even speak to him. Luke chapter 23, verses 8 to 9, make that clear. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracles. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. Oh, poor old Herod had no joy there, did he? He just sent him back to Pilate, and Pilate made one last attempt to have Jesus released. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. And that's in Luke 23, verses 14 to 17. Yeah, Pilate tries to do a deal with the people, doesn't he? He offers to have Jesus scourged or punished in some way and then released. Hopefully that's going to appease the crowd. And also I think he offered to release Jesus as part of this annual amnesty that the Romans had for one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Yeah, they did, but uh, it backfired on Pilate, didn't it? Mm -hmm. The crowd demanded that he release Barabbas instead. Now, Barabbas had been convicted of insurrection and murder. What a, con what a contrast. The innocent Lord Jesus being crucified in the place of a murderer. So Pilate gave in to them and handed Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. Luke doesn't tell us about Jesus being abused by the soldiers before the crucifixion. But we know from the other Gospels that Pilate had him flogged first, and then the soldiers began to mock him and to beat him, dressing him in a purple robe and putting a crown of thorns on his head and pretending to bow down before him. Then when they got tired of that, they led him out and away to the place of crucifixion. Yes, that, that punishment of flogging, it was really brutal. I've heard it said that that on its own could be fatal, never mind everything else that was going on at the same time. Yeah, it certainly could. So we must remember that the soldiers had beaten him, and as a result, Jesus was too weak to carry his cross. So someone else was press-ganned into doing it. As they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, 
who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. That's in Luke 23, verse 26. Hmm, so who was Simon of Cyrene then? Uh, well, actually, we don't really know anything about him. Uh, Cyrene was a place in Galilee, and Mark 15, verse 1 says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So presumably they were known to the Church of the Acts period, but we, we don't know anything more about Simon or his family. Yeah, we don't really, do we? No. However, Luke doesn't tell us much about the crucifixion process, does he? Jesus was taken mm -hmm. to the hill to be crucified, but we don't read much about the process. Luke doesn't dwell on the details. He just simply says this. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. That's Luke well, 23, verse 33. Yeah, well, it's not only Luke. None of the Gospels give us much, if any, information about the crucifixion. No details of how it was done or how the victims reacted. It's just stated in a very matter-of-fact, seemingly an emotional way. Yeah, but what is interesting is the things that Jesus says during the crucifixion process, even at his worst moment, in real incredible physical pain and agony, bearing the penalty for our sins, he thinks about others rather than himself. Yeah, that's right. Um, as he was stumbling up the road to Golgotha, Luke tells us that the road was lined with many people and many women were weeping for him. And Jesus turned to them and said this to them in Luke chapter 23, verses 28 to 30. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. So these were the women of Jerusalem he was talking to. These weren't the women who had followed him up from Galilee. Um, yeah, I think you're right there. There's the women from Jerusalem. And just earlier, if, if you remember, he had wept over Jerusalem. Yeah. So at this moment, he was also concerned that the judgment that was going to fall on that city would actually fall on these women also. Right, but then Luke 23, 34 tells us that as he was being crucified, he said this. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Stephen also said something similar to that, didn't he, when he was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Then he, Stephen, fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But he wasn't only for his murderers, for these murderers that put him on the cross that Jesus prayed for forgiveness. One of the thieves on the cross repented and asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. That's Luke 23, 43. Wow, that must have been really amazing for that criminal to hear these words. He knew that he was dying, so he obviously saw through all the horror of dying to life beyond death. And the Lord had promised him a place with him there. Wow. 
Okay, yeah, well, was there anyone else uh, that Jesus was concerned about when he was on the cross? Well, Luke doesn't tell us this, but John says that just before he died, Jesus committed his mother Mary to the care of John, who is the disciple Jesus loved. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And that's in John 19, verses 26 to 27. And that seems not to be very long before Jesus died. Yeah, it seems to be. Okay, but um, how long do you think the crucifixion took altogether? How long was the Lord actually on the cross? Well, I think you have to go to the other Gospels to answer that. Mark chapter 15, verse 27 says that it was the third hour when they crucified him. That's nine o'clock in the morning. And then at noon, three hours later, darkness came over the land until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon. And at that time, Jesus spoke his final words and died. So the whole process took six hours in total. Yeah, six hours divided into two three-hour periods. Okay, uh, let's look at that first period. What happened in those first three hours? Well, during these first three hours, Jesus' enemies taunted him. First, you've got the Jewish rulers. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. That's Luke 23, verse 35. And then there were the soldiers, which we read about in the next verse. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Okay, so I presume they said that because he had a sign above his head saying the king of the Jews. Presumably, yeah. Uh, and then we have one of the thieves on the cross. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's Luke 23, verse 39. But this is all a bit ironic. All these people called on Jesus to save himself. But if he had done so, he wouldn't have saved us or indeed anybody else. Yes, I think it's also ironic that the titles that they threw at him in mockery, they were all true, the saviour of others, the Christ of God, the chosen one, the king of the Jews. So all that shouting and abuse seemed to have taken place over the first three-hour period. Okay, so what happened during the second three-hour period? Well, the second period, that's from noon till three o'clock, I think was really characterised by two things, darkness and silence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Luke tells us that in the middle of the day until 3pm, the sun stopped shining and there was darkness over the land. But also some other strange thing happened in Jerusalem. Here's one of them. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's Luke 23, verse 45. Yes, Mark 15, 38 says that it was torn from the top to the bottom, which would have been really difficult, if you think about it, difficult for any human being to do. It was definitely God's action. Oh, yeah, that's right. The curtain was the symbol of the barrier between God and man. Only the high priest could go behind that curtain, which was in the temple dividing the holy place from the most holy place. And he could only go there once a year. But now that curtain was torn in two by the death of Christ from top to bottom, 
all of us now can have access to the Father, as Ephesians 2.18 says. But just before he died, Jesus had a few more words to say. I think the, the climax of Jesus' earthly life is, is so important, isn't it? I mean, Luke deals with it very briefly. But when we look at the other Gospels, you get the full picture. Normally, if people are crucified, they die very slowly. They just get completely exhausted and their lives just ebb away. But the Lord's death was different. First of all, he died quickly. Yeah, but both Matthew and Mark relate that as he was dying, the Lord gave out a loud cry. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lana sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a really terrible cry. That's Mark 15, verse 34. Yeah, yeah, awful cry. Um, but the Lord was actually quoting the opening verse of Psalm 22, which goes on to give a description of someone being crucified, which is quite uncanny, since it was written hundreds of years before, and many, many years before crucifixion had been invented. Yeah, but it shows us that at that point, at that point when he took the world's sin on his shoulders and became a sin offering for us, at that point the Father turned away from him. Jesus and his Father had never been separated before. From eternity past they had been one. And now at that moment the Lord was completely on his own. But then, as he died, he turned again to the Father. And we read this in Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Yeah, that's difficult, I think, to know exactly what's going on and when exactly it was happening. I think John's gospel gives us a few more details than the others do. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And that's in John 19, verses 28 to 30. Right. So although Jesus cried out at the separation from his father, he was well aware that all that was happening was in fulfillment of scripture. That's what he'd been saying to his disciples all along. I mean, for example, when Peter attacked the high priest's servant in Gethsemane, this is what Jesus said to him. Put your sword back in its place. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And that's Matthew 26, verses 52 to 54. Exactly. Jesus' final shout, it is finished, indicated the successful completion of his work. As John says, everything was now completed. Yes, it looks as if he asked for a drink just to moisten his lips for that final shout of triumph. I think you suggested earlier, Will, that the Lord's death was very different from the way crucifixion victims usually died. 
It certainly made an impression on the centurion standing at the cross. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And that was Luke 23, verse 47. Yeah, no doubt the centurion had seen hundreds of crucifixions in his time. He was a hardened soldier. But this this one was really different. Mark 15, 39 records that he said, surely this man was the son of God. Well, um, you know, there is no word the in the Greek there. I think he probably meant a son of God. And that is God with a small g, uh, rather than the son of God. Though, of course, that's exactly who Jesus was. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right there. But but the centurion wasn't the only one who was disturbed by what he saw. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And that's Luke 23, verses 48 to 49. You know, I, I get a feeling of, uh, that there was some unease among some of those who were watching. The ones, perhaps, who had come, you know, just for the entertainment value. But they saw something very different and disturbing, I think. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't just those that had come for the entertainment. There were those who had followed Jesus over the previous couple of years. And that would have included the women who'd come up with him from Galilee. They must have been completely devastated. So what happens next? Well, this this um, gentleman called Joseph of Arimathea, he was a member of the Jewish council and he was a believer. He decided that he would take care of Jesus's body. Yeah, he must have been a secret disciple for we, we've heard nothing about him before this point, but... Luke chapter 23, verses 52 to 53, tell us what he did. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and played it in, placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And that's Luke 23, verses 52 to 53. Yeah, and, and John's gospel tells us that he wasn't alone. Nicodemus, who is also a member of the Jewish ruling council, Nicodemus helped him. He was the one, of course, that came to Jesus by night that we read about in John chapter 3. And he was also a secret believer. Yeah, but uh, Joseph and Nicodemus were not the only people at the tomb, were they? The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And that's in Luke 23, verses 55 to 56. Yeah, these women, amazing. They'd been with Jesus throughout his ministry in Galilee, all through that time, looking after him. Then they followed him all the way to Jerusalem. They sat at a distance from the cross, watching now they were watching again as Joseph and Nicodemus put his body in the tomb. Yeah, and these women had an even more important role to play in the events that were soon to take place on the first day of the week. They thought they were going to embalm a body, but they, they were in for a big surprise. However, I think we'll talk about that in our next podcast. Thank you for listening and may God bless you.